When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I am Ben Bowling. Ben, we're back with part three. Mm-hmm. Unprecedented part three of the Tucker episode. Yep. Never happened before. If you have not checked out our previous two episodes on Preston Tucker and the Tucker Corporation, go ahead and stop now. Give them a listen. I suggest you do that because we're not going to recap parts one and two, I don't think. Nope. There may be just a little bit of... Uh, of um, overlap, maybe, I guess, in mm-hmm. some of the things that we say, but not a whole lot, because uh, we want to move on to part three here, which we're, we're intending to talk about a few different things here. We, I, I just want to run down quickly what we're going to mention, I think. Yeah. Um, we didn't really talk about his his efforts to build um, a safe car. I want to start with that, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't talked about aerodynamics. Um, I kind of want to talk about that open letter just for another few minutes. And that's maybe yeah. about the only overlap we're going to have here. But that open letter is so fascinating. There's so much in there. And I think we really kind of skipped over some of the charges that were trumped up against him and mm-hmm. you know some of that stuff. So let's talk about that just a bit. We'll talk about the cars that were produced. Right, the the number of cars, um, where they are now. That's the interesting part, where they are now. And uh, and also maybe some of the pricing, because we didn't talk about pricing of the No, talkers. we didn't. So yeah. we, can, we can talk about that a bit. Uh, how about some replicas? Yeah, how about some replicas? And how about some cars that may or may not be Tuckers? Mm-hmm. That's and, a good idea. And then uh, we can also talk about some cars that never were Tuckers, but would have been, hmm. maybe. Yeah, good idea. We can talk about that. And then there's some uh, some wrap-up stuff. And I do have one last item that I'd like to include that I know that you know this now. We've been uh, we've been studying this information so long now. I know that you're you're in on the secret, but I doubt if all of our fans are. I think there's a a secret about Tucker and one car in particular. Oh yeah, that, uh, that we should talk about that uh, has some history that. I don't think a lot of our listeners are going to really know about. We have to save it till the end, though, Scott. Definitely. We'll do that. So uh, let's dive right in with uh, with the main goal here. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think that a lot of people, you know, maybe listening to all those, you know, the first two parts of the, uh, sure. the all those minutes and minutes, I guess, hours and hours maybe <laughs> right. of, of, you know, what we've talked about already, they understand that, you know, he had a lot of innovations that were built into this car. 
But his main thing, his main focus, Preston Tucker's main focus was safety. Yes. And he, it, it makes sense from his perspective because he's trying to sell not a sports car for a daredevil. He's trying to sell a car to a family. Exactly. And the, the design has some wildly innovative things that, that we don't see coming around for other, for, for a long time. One of the biggest ones, of course, is the shotgun seat safety cage, right? Yeah, that was really cool. The one where the passenger would dive into the lower compartment if they saw a, an imminent crash approaching, right? Which, which sounds crazy, but we have to remember that the Tucker 48 has a rear engine. Ah, uh, yes, but you know what? Also, the other thing we have to remember is that they didn't even have seatbelts in these cars. And the reason they didn't have seatbelts, even though one of his chief designers or chief engineers wanted him to put seatbelts in the car, or he wanted to, rather, I'm sorry, Preston wanted to put seatbelts in the car. His chief designer or engineer said, I don't think that's a good idea, Preston. Uh, here in 1948, that just makes it seem like it's an unsafe car, like you're going to you're going to have problems in this car. Right. Which is remarkable now when we think about it. I mean, mm-hmm. cars have 15 airbags in them. Um, and of course they have seatbelts, you know, in every, every position. Yeah. But it was seen as a, uh, as kind of like a, um, a concession that, that, you know, maybe the car was going to have some issue. You, you may crash this car. Right. Well, if you think about it, it's kind of like uh, the, the argument at the time seems valid. I, I've been thinking over this and here's a good comparison I had, Scott. Mm-hmm. What if you were buying a John Deere lawnmower, right? Mm-hmm. And it was touted as, you know, the safest lawnmower on the market. Mm-hmm. And it came with a tourniquet. Oh, you know I what see. I mean? Okay, I understand. Yeah, I, I, I see your point. Like, uh, you may or may not get your foot caught underneath this thing. Right, right. Mm-hmm. It is the safest the safest lawnmower, um, partially because of this tourniquet yeah, that we've included. Yeah, you could also lose your feet, but, uh, you know, you can, you can tie those off and the bleeding will be kept to a minimum. Right. I got it. I understand. Well, you know, all these safety things, I mean, I guess you could look at a lot of that stuff this way, but, mm-hmm. you know, some of the things like, I mean, the, the lights that we talked about, we, we talked about the Cyclops light, of course. That's the right. main feature and everybody points to that, that, you know, the light turned with the vehicle. And mm-hmm. one thing we didn't talk about, I think, in the first two episodes was how um, that third light was not always on. And that's a perception that a lot of people have is that it had three forward-facing lights at all times. Right. That uh, third light, which did turn with the with the wheels or with the wheel, uh, only turned on if the turn exceeded, what was it, 10 degrees? 10 degrees, Ben. Very good. Yeah. So it was uh, it was like an actuated light. So, mm-hmm. you know, and only, if only if your wheel went past 10 degrees to, you know, either direction would that activate so you know that's how they got around that and it's kind of like a, a, a modern day turning light that you know would be on the lower parking lights right section. uh also we know that this vehicle had a padded dash mm-hmm. and it's had uh it had uh what i think is fair to call a predecessor of crumple zones didn't it yeah yeah it had crumple zones as well i mean things were uh pretty well tucked away i mean the, the rigid body was below the the skin that was meant to, designed to crush. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it did have some crumple zones, and that was, you know what, that was put to the test um, in that uh, in that film footage that I, I shared with everybody on yeah. our blog post on uh, CarStuffShow.com. Yeah, go to CarStuffShow.com and check out the blog post that I put up there about Tucker. And uh, there's, you know, the the two sections of that promotional film from 1949 or whenever it was mm-hmm. uh, that the Tucker Corporation put out. And I think the second part is where the the uh, the vehicle that rolled over in indianapolis they were at like a two-week um testing session where it was like a speed trials and you know safety proving ground type thing that they were doing at the indianapolis speedway one of the drivers rolled one of these things going something like 95 or 100 miles per hour they thought you know the guy was going to you know be dead when they they found him but the car held up remarkably well 
and it just had really superficial damage. Yeah, I think, cosmetic. Yeah, mostly cosmetic. I mean, the windshield popped out as it was designed to do, the two-piece mm-hmm. windshield. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the crumple zones that we mentioned, I don't know if you could really call them crumple zones, but the fenders all crushed down to the, right. to the body yeah. or to the frame. And then uh, also, you know, the thing, it only required, I think, one tire one tire and it was able to drive off the track on its under its own power which was the biggest part of the video was that after they replaced the tire the tucker just zooms off that's right and they show it at the tucker corporation or maybe it's at the garages in indianapolis i'm not sure but they show the crashed vehicle driving under its own power and the driver was unharmed pretty much i mean Mm -hmm. he had you know a few superficial scratches and and cuts and bruises and things but that's about it. I mean, he really wasn't damaged in any no way. No broken so, arm or anything. Exactly. Nothing like that. So, I, you know, the crowd, the, the people that were there on hand that saw this, they went nuts over it. They said, well, man, this is the safest car we've ever seen, really. Speaking of going nuts over something, mm-hmm. uh, I went nuts when you told me a little bit more about the aerodynamic nature of the Tucker. Yes. Yeah, this is, this is really, really nuts. I mean, it, well, we said nuts so many times, but it, <laughs> it is. I mean, when you think about it this way. This is 19, you know, it was designed in what, 1946, 1947, yep. mm-hmm. somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. And it was designed by Alex Tremulous in six days on that, uh, was it Gary, was it Gary Lawson? Is that his name? I think it was Gary Lawson. Yes. Yeah. His original design. Right. So he, he kind of sculpted and, and modeled it a little bit after that. But, um, here's how, here's how aerodynamic this thing was, Ben. The, the Tucker 48, the 48 sedan had a drag coefficient of just 0.27 and for, you know, print, materials, you know, for media purposes. Mm-hmm. They just rounded it up because it wasn't a big deal back then. Right, no they, one cared. They rounded it up to point three zero just for, you know, kind of advertising publication. Sure. But but the actual coefficient, drag coefficient was point two seven. So obviously it was the most aerodynamic car in the world at the time. Very aerodynamic. And again, six six days to design the thing, right? And then it was pounded out with hammers in a garage somewhere, you know. By hand. Like, yeah. By hand, yeah. It was an amazing car. But just for comparison's sake you know the the uh, the Toyota Prius, the modern Toyota Prius, and we know that is a very efficient car, mm-hmm. designed by supercomputers, Ben, and you know some kind of uh, you know um, high tech lab somewhere. Right. You know, yes. It, yeah. it spent weeks, if not months, years designing this thing. You know to to be the slipperiest car ever. Its drag coefficient is 0.26. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about the Tucker at 0.27. You know what? Sixty years. Well, how long ago was that? Sixty years ago? Yeah. 70, 70, 70 years. I think. Seventy years ago. Um, and it, really, it's very, very negligible difference between 0.26 and 0.27. 0.01. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, just to tell you how, how slippery this thing was, the factory test of the Tucker were given at something like 20 miles per gallon at speeds of 50 to 55 miles per hour. And when you look at it, it mm-hmm. still, it still has an, the appearance of those big 1950s cars. It doesn't sure. look, doesn't look anything like a, a Prius, which obviously to, I mean, to me, it looks slippery. You know, it looks like it could slip through the air pretty easy. Right. The Tucker, on the other hand, looks like it has those big fenders. It has big areas where air would collect and everything. Yeah, it just doesn't do that. I mean, it just has the, the it has, I guess the, uh, the the knack for design, you know, that the Tremulous had that uh, made it allowed it to flow through, you know, quickly. Which is so fascinating to me because I I wonder how. Okay, I while I can understand theoretically that it would be possible for a designer of that time to calculate. The, I love the phrase slippery car to calculate mm-hmm. the most slippery design possible and to make it by hand and do a pretty good job. It's 
very difficult for me to imagine that happening in six days. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty remarkable and taking someone else's design. And that really wasn't the entire goal. I mean, the goal, I think, was the safety car design. You know, so he, right. wanted, he wanted it to have certain dimensions. You had to be able to make the engine fit because it had that big flat mm-hmm. six Franklin engine. Yeah. Uh, so that had to be able to fit um, and had all these other features like he wanted. Originally, he wanted a center seating position, which we talked right. about, I think, just very briefly. But that would have been like, um, uh, what was that other car? The uh, the Corsair, the Phantom Corsair. Yep. Remember, that had a mm-hmm. center seating position, but you pointed out that it was... It's a, it's a slightly off-center. Um, anybody who hasn't checked out our Corsair episode should do that. Immediately after listening to this, if you are driving around somewhere, keep driving, because that episode is fascinating. That was another car way ahead of its time. Right, and it's uh, made by a ketchup tycoon. Yeah. Uh, so the, the Corsair is just a, a little bit different, because it had a bench, it had bench seating in the front for four people, and the driver was the second from the left. Yeah, strange, strange design. Still doesn't make complete sense to me. The the Tucker was gonna was originally supposed to have the driver in the center front and then kinda like uh what was it, a McLaren? The had, McLaren had yeah. that standard style where there was there were two other seats diagonally behind you. How so cool would that it forms a triangle if you look straight down on it. I would love to see that Are in production, that, yeah. that would be awesome. I mean, I, I love the McLaren design. I think it's just so cool that the driver sits right in the middle, very much like a I, race car. I think it's smarter to have the driver in the middle. Yeah, and then you know what? The other thing is, like you know, I think it is too. I I, I believe you. I, mm. I think that's exactly right. You're you're centered. You seem like you know the corners of the car a little better. Yeah. Um, you're not looking across the whole car to see where the the far fender is. You exactly. Know, turns things like that. I mean, you get the feel for it quickly, but. Still, it's better to be able oh, to see everything. One more safety thing we should say that differentiated the Tucker to other cars of its day, uh, it was that the the console area, the driver instruments, um, were all. Uh, you had talked about this, I think, earlier too. Were all clustered around the driver. Yeah, and to the left of the driver, mainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not, not entirely, but mainly to the left of him and uh, or him or her. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that the passenger area was almost completely open, except for that box. Yeah. So that was another innovative design that you know people weren't going to be uh, you know impaled by these uh, these switches and knobs that stick out from the dash, which you mm-hmm. know. Not impaled. I mean, I guess poked, poked by them. You <laughs> right. know, when they hit the dash, I guess if there's an accident. But mm-hmm. um, you know, looking at old car, older cars, the dashes do look pretty dangerous. I mean, and if, sure. if there's no seatbelt in play nope. and uh, they're metal, and you know, I mean, I could see a lot of teeth being knocked out. That's on what things. it was. The, there were metal dashes, and especially when, especially in some of the other cars of the 40s and even the 50s, you know, when they had some of those. Uh, Analog style clocks yes. right there, smack dab in the center. Sure. Which I just so, if anybody wants to know, I, I would love to have a car from preferably 1956. Uh, I won't complain about the clock. So, mm, understood. I, you're a Packard fan, by the way. Right? I'm a huge Packard fan. Big yeah. Packard fan. I know that of you. So, I, and I think you even said, you mentioned one day that you would like to buy your dad a, t- a Packard someday. Oh, man. For years, I have. Me and old man Bolin go back and forth on this. Uh, it, it was something that I said years ago, man. I was a kid. But you know how it is with your parents. Uh, to me, at, at some point, if it's possible, I, I'd love to. I'd love to hook him up with that. Will he wreck it in two weeks? Perhaps, but it's the principle of the thing. <laughs> Understood. All right. But, All right. Uh, but yeah, we digress. Uh, and let's, uh, let's talk about the letter. 
Let's talk about, we need to talk about this letter because one of the things that that honestly bothered me a little bit about part two, Scott, mm-hmm. is that there was so much to explore that when we got to the trial, we didn't get to spend enough time on it. Yeah, and, you know, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it right, right now, but let's add to what we've already said. About right, it. so we read part of... We read part of the letter where he alleges um, a conspiracy, for lack of a better word. Sure, yeah. The SEC was coming down on him, and uh, in October of 1949 is when the trial began. And there were actually, you know, we didn't mention the counts. There were 31 counts of conspiracy and securities and mail fraud mm-hmm. against Preston and, and uh, the, uh, 11 other associates. Exactly. The the other members of his uh, this tribe there, I guess, you know, the guys that he put together, his uh his top guns. His who's who. Yeah, the who's who of the auto industry at the time, right? Because mm-hmm. um, this was a this was a serious deal. I mean, and so so serious that you know, and and he got to the point where he was you know, so frustrated with all this, and he knew what was going on, and he just couldn't get his get the message out to right. everybody that he wanted to. So he wrote an open letter um, to the entire automobile industry. It was published, and, uh, and we've got excerpts of this thing. Um, and if you want to, you know, I, I tell you what, if you want to read the whole thing. Right. Go to uh, tuckerclub.org where you can see the entirety of the letter, which I would say if you are, even if you're not a Tuckeroo, which is apparently the word for Preston Tucker <laughs> fan, um, this, this letter is historically important. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and knowing that, okay, well, not let the cat out of the bag or anything, right. but knowing that all of these charges were dropped and that the entire, the entire group, all of them were acquitted of all charges in 1950 in January. So this thing yep. only lasted from October 49 until January of 1950. Um, it, you know, it's kind of a long trial, I guess, in that, you know, they kept, they drug it out quite a while just to, sure. I think it was just to ensure his bankruptcy, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the jury, when it was all over, they called it a, far, a farce proceeding. They said that, you know, this should never have come to trial even. There was just no proof of anything against Tucker. And, you know, he had stated that, you know, many, many times that he thought there were people on the inside that were leaking information. He right, thought that moles. there was sabotage going on. Mm-hmm, um, especially he, with the premiere. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't even mention, um, you know, the, this uh, Cleveland uh, steel mill that he had wanted to try, try to buy. Oh, yeah. They were, they were keeping him from buying raw materials. So he had put in a bid um, for this this plant, this, this Cleveland, Ohio steel plant. And just as an example, I mean, he, his bid was $4 million more than the winning bid that they accepted. So they, they bypassed his winning bid and gave it to the second place bidder, really, mm. just for no other reason other than, you know, they just were trying. They lost money on the bid to, I, I'm going to say it, uh, pardon my French, to screw over Preston Tucker. It really is that way. And, you know, we, we've said this over and over again, you and I. Mm-hmm. We talked about this before the podcast, like long time ago, before part one even. Mm-hmm. And you and I were kind of thinking... Well, maybe it's just one of these guys that went out of business because, you know, that's what happened to a lot of, you know, early automotive pioneers. Yes, sir. It just happened. You know, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them that went mm. out of business because, well, they just couldn't keep up with the, the rest of the industry. Right. You know, they're building them in their shed or their barn like Preston was for a while. Mm. But here he was. He's buying. He bought the biggest factory in the world. He's actually producing cars in in Chicago, rather. Yeah. He's trying to buy steel plants in, in Cleveland to supply that that factory. He can't do it. Someone's holding him back. There's all this, uh, the, these, these charges of conspiracy, you know, back and forth, and the SEC is coming in and investigating for fraud, and you know, he he's doing a little bit of, uh, I don't know, you call it hinky sales tactics, where he's selling sure. dealerships and things like that for, you know, the rights to to sell cars for cars that haven't been built yet, and, right? Selling um, accessories for cars that don't exist yeah, yet, yeah, which they, was the big flashpoint. Yeah, I understand, but you know, and and the more and more we got into this, the deeper we got into mm-hmm. it. 
we realize that there's there's way too many coincidences. And that's something he points out in his letter. And I, I urge all of you to read this letter. It's very short. It's not very long. Yeah. Do you want to do you have an excerpt? I, I have one that I want to read and I'll keep it short because it, it really states why he wrote this letter. I mean, it kind of gets right to the heart of the whole thing. And it's later in the letter, but it says, as, pres- uh, as president of Tucker Corporation, I'm responsible to 1,872 Tucker dealers and distributors and nearly 50,000 Tucker shareholders, uh, stockholders rather. Yeah. These people have put $25 million into the Tucker Corporation and I'm going to protect their interests. So he's, he's saying, you know, these people believed in me. I'm going to do my best to, to produce what I said I was going to for them. It's not like this isn't some, um, uh, oh, what do you call that when there's nothing there? Oh, um, uh, vaporware. Vaporware. Yeah, yeah that's it's right. It's not a Ponzi scheme. It's, it's not vaporware. It's not. And we kind of thought that it was initially. Mm-hmm. And then we realized, no, he's really doing it. And he, the, the reason that he couldn't get things going is because this trial was holding him back and there were other things happening. But he was in place and ready to go at that factory. Yeah. And he was, he was moving smart. The, there were real cars ready to roll off the lot. And mm-hmm. he was, uh, everything that we see looking back, indicates that the Tucker Corporation was primed to grow uh, exponentially mm-hmm. and I don't think that's uh, I don't think that's an unfair word no no he has he has uh, a claim in here that he says now he doesn't say he has hundreds he doesn't say his thousands he says he has hundreds of thousands of letters that were written to him by people that were interested in in putting down a down payment on this thing right because here's a brand new Rear engine Tucker that we'd love to see because it's loaded with safety features. It's, mm-hmm. it's so unique. It's so, uh, incredible from everything that we've seen, you know, prior to World War II. Right. And even since World War II because no one was building anything. Right. That's true. We mentioned that. I think the yeah. big three weren't making new types of cars. Exactly. Not at all. Not a single new car since the war. And here we are all the way into almost 1950. Yep. Um, I think they started to pick it up right about that point, but you know, sure. he's, ar- he's already doing it. He's got cars that have come off of the assembly line at this point. So, this is a, this is like a, a pivotal point, I think, is this trial because that really took him down. That was it. That was the end of him. Right, because the SEC's position, specifically with the fraud allegation, was that Tucker himself never intended to actually build cars, and that's why you and I are harping on this right now mm-hmm. because uh, his. We talked about some of this stuff earlier. His defense team refused to call witnesses because mm-hmm. they said there was no offense and. Uh, they had, I know that I mentioned this, their, the lawyer, uh, the head of the defense team for Tucker made, I think, the strongest point in the trial when he essentially said, oh, so the SEC is saying that we never intended to build cars. Uh, before you reach your verdict, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, uh, please feel free to come outside with us to one of the Tucker cars that we built and take a ride. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you you let us know if it's real. Yeah, they took a little ride around the block or whatever they did, and they went outside and at least saw them. Right. Um, I don't know if they actually took a ride in them or not. They may have been movie, uh, you know, Hollywood stuff. Well, they were those. off. I know they were offered. I oh, don't know if they actually did take Very good. Ride. Yeah, but they were there. The cars yeah. were there on the curb waiting for them to take them for a ride. And they said, look, we've got more than just one. It's not just the Tin Goose. Right. It's not just the one that I built in my shed or my barn or whatever. Um, these are the ones that came off the factory line in Chicago, and this and I can make I can make six thousand more of these a year if you want me to, I or, know. or however many it was. I can't remember the number at this point. Before we move on though, mm-hmm. from the trial, is there anything else you want to say? About you know, that? no. I think I think the trial is fine. I mean, I just I want to say that you know the trial was happening in in October of fifty nine. 
or 49 rather, and the Tucker Corporation was officially, I mean, this thing has been going on for a while. They're officially bankrupt in March of 1949. Mm-hmm. So this is something that has been just dragging him down like you wouldn't believe. And we talked just briefly, I mean, you and I off air yeah. about some of the, the charges against Tucker that he was, the other perception about Tucker, and I think this is the last point we need to do okay. this, the perception was that he was like some multimillionaire that was just living like like a king. Oh, that's right. Yes, I. Uh, we talked about this. We sh- we should mention this. You're right. We you need to dwell on this for a second because there was this huge perception that, which didn't help his case, that Preston Tucker was living the high life off investors' money. That he had this huge apartment in Chicago and that he was uh, flying back and forth, crisscrossing the country on a private jet. Yeah, and that this meant that all the money that was supposed to go toward building the Tucker 48 was instead going into the pocket of Preston Tucker. But as you and I found out, that's not exactly true. Yeah, see, that's what people thought, because the, the press would show photos of Tucker, say, relaxing in his condo in uh, on Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, right? Right, which, if you're not familiar with Chicago, is a very nice yeah, neighborhood. Chicago, Lakeshore Drive, late 1940s. That was the place to be. It may still be the place to be. I don't know. I'm not sure. But um, a very exclusive neighborhood, a very mm-hmm. exclusive address. Mm-hmm. And they showed him, you know, like there's one particular photo. And I laughed about this one. Yeah. It's the funniest example I can think of. He was lounging on some couch, right? And he was relaxing, kind of kicked back, you know, just taking it easy for probably just for five minutes or something. Mm-hmm. They take a photo of him. And the perception is like, here's this fat cat just laying around, you know, uh, Smoking, uh, you know, cigars rolled with a rolled up with hundred dollar bills or whatever, right. you know, yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of thing, right? Living, <laughs> living big, right? Well, you know, everybody's thinking, well, he spent millions on that on that condo or that apartment. Sure, right? that's not the case. He had leased it for an extremely low cost, and the reason he got it for such a low cost, and I laugh about this every time I think about it, he had rented this place from uh, some little people. And the entire place was scaled down. All the furniture, all the fixtures, all the countertops, everything was scaled down. For little people, like uh, I'm going to say, like dwarfs or something like that. I'm that, not sure. What yeah, the, I was going to say we we don't mean like economically unimportant no, no. people or proletarian I mean, or whatever. I mean, like three feet tall, physically small yeah. people. And so, you know, there's some comical photos also of like his daughter using a dressing table, you know, combing her oh, hair. Yeah, at the vanity. At the, yeah, at the vanity. Like she's uh, she's kind of leaned over and brushing her hair, but she has to bend way down because the countertop is so it's down to knee height. Right. And uh, so he got this thing at, at such a bargain rate. And that was part of his his thing is that you know while I'm in Chicago I can live in this this cut rate apartment because mm-hmm. he did get it for a low low cost nice right. neighborhood sure but you've got to put up with the fact that everything is tiny yeah and you know for some people that might be a nice ego trip and that was never <laughs> that was never put in the story no. that was just that was just like well Tucker's living on Lakeshore Drive and everybody's like well that's got to be an expensive place so the other part of the story never came out right now he, here's an interesting thing too. No, I don't want to roll over you on this. Sure. Okay, here's an interesting thing as well. Um, astute listeners uh, have probably already heard us mention the film a couple of times, mm-hmm. uh, Tucker, A Man in His Dream. And this is a Francis Ford Coppola film about Preston Tucker. It's received a lot of accolades. It has also received a fair share of criticism. If you read articles that are a bit more skeptical of Preston Tucker's side of the story, then one of the big things that they like to say is that um, history has romanticized Preston Tucker as a man against the corporate machine, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and while 
that may be an intriguing story. They say that the magic of the movie has, for for lack of a better word, um, or for lack of a better phrase, given some rose-tinted glasses to the entire story. But that got me thinking. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to Tucker, and how Speaking about this? Cars. Let's let's get back to, um, you know, we talked about the, the open letter a little bit, and yep. uh, I think... Before we talk about the number of cars and where they are and all that, I want to okay. I want to mention the price because we didn't really talk about the price. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and yeah. We'll keep this brief, but you know, as usual, I've done the uh, inflation cal- calculator. Thank you. Yeah, I do that often with a lot of these mm-hmm. things. So the price of a Tucker, you know, when it was uh, brand new in in 1948, was two th- anywhere between two thousand four hundred and fifty dollars, mm-hmm. and then it kind of raised up. You know, the estimates went up to about four thousand dollars, which. In their defense is a common thing during a uh, car's development. Like, look at the Volt. Yeah, sure, it happens. I mean, the prices start out kind of low, and they say, like, we're going to give you all of this for this price. And they're like, yep. well, testing and development has proven that we're not able to give it to you for that price. Let's give it to you for uh, this price. And sure. it's a little bit more, and then it goes up, up, up until the final production, and then it's always just a little bit higher than you thought. All right, so, uh, Noel, if we could get a drum roll, please. What is the price in the modern day? All right, so in 2013 dollars, 
Okay. If you want to take it from, you know, the 2450 to 4000, $23,682.35 all the way up to $38,665.06. So I guess I mean you know it started out kind of low at twenty three six and it went all the way up to thirty eight six. However, I mean when you look at comparable sedans today in twenty thirteen twenty fourteen, yeah, it's in the ballpark. That really is pretty fairly priced. I mean, yeah. especially with a car as innovative as the Tucker was, that seems like it might have been a bargain. Yeah, I think so. Considering all of the stuff that you would still get there, mm-hmm. because if you look at a price range like that in modern cars today in the US mm-hmm. that is reasonable it is reasonable you know what's not reasonable what's that the price that was paid for a tucker recently at auction oh no is because, it time uh, yeah it is time i think we should just mention <laughs> this because you know we we've probably or most listeners have probably heard that you know of course these cars were sold for you know 2450 or $4000 sure, or whatever sure. right i get that i understand that you know those those 50 are still pretty limited they're well they're very limited the ones that are around still are rare, and they sell for quite a bit of money. So the, the ones that you know we think about, you know, they go to auction. These are the ones that you know the the million dollar cars that that museums pay for. Right. These are like marquee cars. These are things you see in the Smithsonian or billionaires collection. Well, before you go on though, let me just say because these are auction prices, right? Auction prices. Okay. Just a little bit of background. If you don't, if you don't know. The, the Tuckers are any of the Tucker cars that ever pops up. It's going to be something that car aficionados around the world travel to bid on. So I just want that to be exactly they'll something cross, people understand. They'll, they'll cross oceans to bid on that car. Yes, sir. And bring it to their, to their homeland. I mean, that's, that's the way it works. I mean, so, you know, these are, these are coveted vehicles. Now the, you know, the past record, and I think a lot of people have heard this one. Um, the past record was something like one million two hundred twenty-seven thousand five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of money for a That's... car that sold for twenty-four fifty originally, uh, four thousand bucks or whatever. Yeah, a right? used car. A used, <laughs> yeah, a used car that's seventy years old, right? Okay, I understand that. Right now, in January of two thousand twelve, there was a recent sale, another another uh, Barrett Jackson sale in Scottsdale, Arizona, and this is the highest price ever paid for Tucker, and it was Tucker number no, the forty-third Tucker that rolled off the line. So, okay. Uh, the car number one zero four three, and the total price Ben was two point six five million dollars. Someone bid two point six five million for a Tucker. Ah uh, 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 wait, plus, the number goes up plus bidder fees. Ah, ten percent. Now, can you imagine paying ten percent on top of two point six five million? So the total price two point nine one million dollars total. Two point nine one. So almost three. Almost $3 million wow. for a Tucker. So the price has gone up considerably. And if I had one of the other Tuckers, you know, not one, not the one that just sold, but one of the other ones, yeah. I would be rubbing my hands together, you know, <laughs> trying to determine which sale I would put it up at you know, next, you know, because I think the value goes up. Every time one of these things takes itself out of circulation mm-hmm. or is sold for an incredible price like that, the rest of them have to be going up in value as well. Absolutely. And now it's time for us to talk about the cars themselves, right? Yes. Where are they now? Yeah, and uh, how many are there? Which oh, is another one. That right? is that is okay. So we know that we know that including the the goose, there were fifty one complete cars. Is that right? Yes. Okay, and we know that there were more frames than there were cars. Yeah, and I want to add one little yeah asterisk here, is that uh, there was another car that was never completed. So there's one that kind of came off the line that was that was semi-completed, and the parts were never there. I think in 1980 or something like that. Yeah, in the ni- in the uh, 1980s. I'm not sure exactly when, 
but it was finally finished with replica pieces, like, like hmm. um, fiberglass pieces. But um, that's the only kind of asterisk that I want to add to that whole thing. But 58, 58 frames, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's intriguing. That is what what else is going on there, and we'll find we'll find some interesting. I'll call them theories mm-hmm. or uh, debates. But uh, so just so you know, uh, listeners, the way to the way to figure out the story of a Tucker car to figure out which car is which is to go by chassis number. Sure. So they all have a one and a zero in front of it. So mm-hmm. the first car is like one. Well, the goose is one is car zero. Yeah, car zero. They don't even have. Uh, I don't even know if there's a, a registration number on that one. I don't think there is. Man. I, I don't think so because they don't call that one zero zero zero. You know, there's an, the first car off the production line. It was one zero zero one, and we'll just call them car for clarity. Oh one, oh two. Sure. Know, car forty three, car fifty, whatever it is. Yeah. So fifty one cars total. So you know, there's the the, the tin goose plus fifty others, and of those fifty one. 47 exist today. Yes. And we know that, uh, we know that one fortunate thing is we're able to, we are at least able to know what happened to the ones that don't exist. Yes. Um, all right. More or less. More or less. So Scott, I have to ask, what are some of the interesting stories that you have? Well, if you go to the Tucker, you know, the Tucker, what is it? Tuckerclub.org? Yeah, Tuckerclub.org. Um, they have kind of a, a Tucker car guide or, you know, find a Tucker or something like that. It's a Tucker registry, basically. Yeah. And it has, it has a picture of each car. It tells you where it is right now and if it's on display. And I think you still have to kind of, you know, look through and make sure that it truly is on display because museums change their display options often. Right. But yep. um, you click on each car and it'll tell you a little bit more of the story of that one. It's not just that those three little items. Click on the picture. They'll, they'll show you more pictures of that specific vehicle. Mm-hmm. And then some additional information. So I clicked through every single one of these cars, Ben. Yep. All of them. And I found all the, uh, I just kind of, I'll quickly go through and just give you some highlights because all of them have, you know, a semi-interesting story. Some have a really interesting story. And then this kind of leads into our, our last thing that's a surprise. Right. And I've got a little bit of new info on that, by the way. Um, okay. So the, the first one, the Tin Goose mm-hmm. is owned by the, the Swigert Auto, um, Antique Auto Museum. And they also own another one. They also own car number 13. So they have two Tuckers at the, uh, I think it's Swigert or Swigert maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, uh, that's in Huntington, Huntington, right? Huntington, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's one that's in Japan. That's car number, uh, car number four. And I do want to come back to number four in just a little bit because there's another interesting fact about number four that we all need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Car number eight. Oh, number eight, Ben. Yeah. Number eight was a car that was given away in a 1949 raffle for 35 cents. A guy bought one 35 cent ticket in 1949 and he won the car with one ticket. And the crazy thing about this is this guy's name is, um, uh, Rudy Schroeder and he's from uh, Perrysville, Missouri. And he was age 21 when he, when he won this thing in 1949. The problem was he couldn't get insurance for the thing. He drove it for a while. Yeah. I think he lost his insurance like three times because mm. they wouldn't insure it. And, he said, you know, after a while, it just became so much trouble, I just got rid of it. I just sold it to somebody. You know, didn't really care at the time. It wasn't such a value, you know, a trader's um, or a valuable piece at the time. Right. It was more just an oddity. It was. It was an oddity. It was unique. It was It was fun, and he loved it. He really did like the car, but he just couldn't keep it because he couldn't insure it. It was kind of treated the way that um, a little-known import brand would be treated. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's rare, but, you know, what are you going to do with it? Really? Yeah. There's so, no market for it at the time. 
Um, it wasn't clearly wasn't as valuable. But Hemings Hemings.com has the whole story on their blog, and there's a there's an article called uh, Tucker Raffle Winner uh, Revisited uh, Reunited Rather with his car after 63 years. So 63 years later, they bought him back and showed him his car. You know, it's now part of a museum or part of a collection in Chicago, I think it is. Uh-huh. Um, so they were able to reunite him with it. It's a good story anyways. Yeah. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola, he owns two of these cars because he's the one who directed that film, uh, you know, the Tucker film, and got he was so enthralled with it, he bought two of these cars while he was producing the mm-hmm. film. Probably before he produced it, so there wasn't quite the uh, the drive for them. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, but he also he owns um, number fourteen. And he also owns number thirty seven. Number sixteen is the car that's on display at the Henry Ford Museum, which I've seen that one before. Black yep. uh, Black Tucker. Um, another one that's in Japan is car number twenty. Uh, that one uh, this one in nineteen fifty three. Car number eighteen was wrecked and then scrapped for parts. And um, I think they say parts of that one just kind of exist here and there. They're kind of right. traded around, sold, you know, auctioned off, whatever. They're still, even the parts are valuable. Um, also, and I'll, I'll end up with this pretty quick here, but number 23 has got a kind of an interesting story. This one was destroyed in a fire, and there was just absolutely no saving it at all. I mean, it was uh, it was uh, gone. You know, there's no way to bring it back. You couldn't de-rust it and, and bring it back from where it was. It was right. melted and warped and everything. This car eventually had to go to the, the crusher. There was no way around it. Uh, but after it was crushed, and this is interesting, a founding member of the TuckerClub.org bought the remains of that car. Yep. Of the crushed car. Brought and had, the square. Had them buried under his garage, and he knows where they are all the time. So it's like kind of a, a comforting thought to him to know where number number 23 is, and that's the Tucker that he owns. Yeah, it's a cold comfort. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but so. you do technically own a com- uh, one, sir. And again, yeah. uh, this is the last time I'm going to say more stuff about this website that we keep mentioning, but... TuckerClub.org is an amazing resource. Oh, it is. It definitely is. And they put a lot of work into it, and it's free, and please check it out if you're all interested. I have one car before we go on. Okay. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed 
change my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy, yeah. right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, 26. 26, okay. All right, the thing about 26 is that it's the only complete Tucker that has the Tucker-matic transmission. Oh, really? Yeah. That's that uh, automatic transmission that he wanted, right? That that Tucker himself wanted, but didn't really fly, right? Right, and so uh, this... uh, this was originally owned for a while by a guy named David Kamek, and when he passed away in 2013, his collection was donated to the AACA Museum uh, out there in Hershey, Pennsylvania. No kidding. So that's the only one out of all these cars that has the, the Tuckermatic. Now, that was I think the problem with that one was that it was stripping the gears out, really, on the, yeah. uh, the first gear. Is that right? Something yeah, like it that? Wasn't, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't production quality at that point. They well, could have fixed it. But. I, well, I think the torque was the problem, right? Because there was so much torque in that Franklin engine yeah. that it just was destroying the transmissions. And, and the Preston's design, which I think... The main thing about the, the Preston, or was it the Tuckermatic or whatever he called it, mm-hmm. I think the main thing about that was it had so many fewer parts than a traditional automatic transmission at the time. Right, yeah. And you know you know how I feel about this kind of stuff, man. I'll take simplicity over uh, a bunch of bells and whistles. Yeah. But it wasn't quite worked out. Yeah, so. it wasn't exactly right. I mean, it, simplicity is a great thing, of course. You try to pare things down and make them easier, and I understand that. But this thing was, uh, it was just, it was just not enough to cover the the torque, so it just couldn't. Yeah. Do it. Now it sounds like a remarkable thing. Look into the the Tuckermatic, by the way, because I mean, I'm I'm just making these numbers up, Ben. But if <laughs> if a if a regular transmission had something like you know 150 moving parts or whatever in it, this one had something like 27. Right. It was, uh, it was dramatically lower. I mean, it was supposed to be it's supposed to be a a, a a true reinvention of the automatic Ooh. transmission, really. Okay, so let's just quickly go through the last ones, and then we'll get back to our, our story okay. here. Oh, yeah, we have to put in some other things before we get to the surprise. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we do. That's right. Okay. All right, so number ten twenty seven or number 27 yeah. was the car that was rolled in testing in Indianapolis, and only, again, remnants and remains and parts of this one yeah. exist as well. Uh, Harrow's, Harrow's Auto Collection in Reno, Nevada owns number 32. Uh, the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles owns number 30. I'll see. Francis Ford Coppola, we already talked about that for his other one. The uh-huh. Smithsonian car, the one that's on our um, our webpage. Oh, yeah, 39, right? Number 39, that's right. And that is a gorgeous silver car. That's a, a really, really pretty. If you take a look at the photo on carstuffshow.com Com. Yeah. and 
tell me what you think of that silver car. It's on our podcast page, or it's the highlighted one for one of the one of the parts of our show. Maybe part two. Something else interesting about that car. Do you know how the Smithsonian got it? Do you uh, hear this story? No, I did not. They got it from the U.S. Marshal Service. No kidding. Because it was seized in a 1992 drug bust. Really? Yeah. Uh, wait, hang on. Here we go. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. So it was. It was placed in display in 2011. Yeah, the Smithsonian got it when the U.S. Marshal Service seized the car in a 1992 narcotics arrest. So instead of selling it at an auction the way the Marshal system usually would Mm -hmm. with a repoed car or pressing in the service, they decided to donate the car to the Smithsonian. Very nice. And that's that's pretty I think that's pretty amazing. You know, I I kind of like that. I like that it was uh it was donated and everybody can get to enjoy that, you know. I've got okay, so another one. I okay. know I know we're doing I think this is going to be the podcast where we one more thing it for a while. <laughs> okay. Uh but um car number 38 was earned by owned by a guy named uh Bernard Gleberman and uh for a while he owned the Shreveport Pirates. Hmm. And creditors moved to get the car from him to possess the car because he was having some financial problems and apparently his lawyer attempted to commit some grand theft auto with Gleberman's blessing I imagine and hide it from hide it from Uncle Sam Uh, he ran out of gas on the way how embarrassing is yeah, that? Sure. I wonder what his plans were. Was he headed like uh, south of the border or something, or what was he doing? I don't know. Was he going to bury it? That would be an interesting story if he buried the car. I know. We should have been. They should have had us on the horn in this yeah. decision. Put it in a vault somewhere. Right. But the the car he did. Uh, Gleberman did get to keep the car in his legal proceedings. Uh, the car was auctioned in 2006, and then again it was sold in 2008. Okay. All right. I've got uh, a couple more here, right. and that's it, really. Um, you know what? Actually, just one more, because we already talked about the record-breaking car. That was number 43. Right, right. Um, oh, and by the way, number 43, that's the record-breaking car. It wasn't even like the first one off the assembly line. It wasn't the last one. Nope. It was just... They have a Tucker Matic. I'm going to say nondescript number 43. You know, which, yeah. I mean, they're all unique. I, I Don't get me wrong, but um, amazing still. Okay, the one, last one I want to mention, really, before you know we get into some other stuff is um, yeah. number 42. And this is kind of a heartbreaking story, really. Um, Memphis, Tennessee, there's a Tucker found abandoned on the riverbanks of the Mississippi. Oh, I remember this. Yeah. Incredible. A state trooper, I think, found it, or, or a local police officer. I'm not sure if it's state or local. Um, the whole story is on, on Tucker or, or TuckerClub.org. Yeah. He finds this car on the riverbank, has it towed to his house, you know, or wherever. I mean, he, you know, it's just an abandoned car. There's nothing better to do with it. He says, well, I'll take it. And, you know, I don't know how all that worked out, really. I'm not sure the legality of all that. But mm-hmm. as he has it at his house, you know, and he knows what it is. He knows it's a Tucker. He's got it parked on the side of his house. He goes into the hospital for some operation or something. While he's away, someone steals the Tucker that's parked outside of his house, you know, that just looks like a hunk of metal, really, Yeah. for scrap. And he thinks that it was just sold for scrap metal somewhere. So the existence or the, uh, the, the you know, where is car number 42 is kind of a mystery at this point. So it's just gone, but he really believes it was just sold for scrap metal for, you know, whatever it weighed. God, I hope not. That would be incredible. What a, what a terrible ending for that car if that's what happened. So at this point, we, we know that we, we know which of the Tucker cars or chassis have been destroyed, which mm-hmm. exist for the most part. Um, and if you're like us and you yourself are not yet an eccentric billionaire, uh, then you're probably wondering, oh man, is there any way that I could ever get a Tucker? Well, we do have some good news mm-hmm. because while there are not readily available original Tuckers, 
the world of replicas might be just what you need. Also rare, but you know, also at least, rare. but you can at least get them, and they're—I'm going to call them semi-affordable. I don't know the exact numbers on these things, but I'm sure they're very—they're pretty expensive. They're like comparatively yeah, affordable. The, the, the place that builds them is—is, is, uh, and I'm sure there's there may be more than one, but the one that I'm talking about here, these fiberglass body replicas, are, is a place called Rob Eda Concepts. And uh, it's Rob Ida, that's I-D-A Concepts, mm-hmm. in Morganville, New Jersey. And they build these replica cars. And they're they're a third-generation coach-building company because, uh, not just because, but I'm saying third-building, third-generation coach-building family. And the reason they're interested in Tuckers is because yeah. the father of this whole thing, or maybe the grandfather, his name is Joe Ida, he had a Tucker dealership in 1946 for three days. <laughs> yeah. In 1946, you know, Tucker sold him a dealership for three, three days, days because... Because, you know, it was supposed to happen and then suddenly, you know, this, this lawsuit took off and he said, sorry, we're going to yank that out from underneath you. But, um, he, it kind of got in his blood. He said, you know, I, I really like this car. I believe in this car. He was, mm. he was so behind it that he wanted to sell the car and he couldn't do it. Right. So, you know, Joe Ida and now Rob Ida, who is their son or grandson, I'm not sure which, um, they have this, this company called Ida Concepts and they build these composite body Tucker 48 replicas. And they're known as the the new Tucker 48. So if you want to look up new Tucker 48, yep. you'll find it that way. And now they've got a new project, even something maybe even a little bit better. I, I don't know if you could say better, but different. Um, they're building actual metal replicas of the the Tucker torpedo, the original Tucker torpedo, which is the the design that was never you know that's the Lawson uh, design. That's Gary Lawson's design. That's now coming back. They they scanned that model because it never went past the model stage. Right. They had I don't know what the scale was, like one eighth scale or whatever. Maybe. They did a scan of that and they transferred that to blueprints, and then from the mm. blueprints to a model, you know, a wooden buck, and then they're they're metal they're metal forming over this wooden buck by hand by hand to create, you know, these Tucker torpedo cars that are that are driving you know driving models. I mean, full scale models now. So. um how cool is that to be able to drive a Tucker 40, you know, I'm sorry, a Tucker torpedo that mm-hmm. Tucker himself never saw on the road? Yeah, and it's weird. Okay, speaking of things Tucker himself never saw on the road. Yeah. Scott, did you hear that old saw about the lost Tucker convertible? I did not, but what, what, uh, what's going on with this? <laughs> so, did someone just cut the top off of one or what? So, there's a guy, this, this is interesting, uh, there's a guy who has claimed that he is restoring a lost Tucker convertible. Mm. So uh, according to this, uh, this guy is uh, an owner at a place called Benchmark Classics. And uh, he says that he acquired a Tucker in December of 2008 after running into a guy named Reinhardt at a swap meet. And what he got was a rolling chassis and an assortment of body parts, as well as the instrument cluster and seat frames. Hmm. So we're missing a lot of stuff. Rocker panels, rear quarter panels, etc. No, no upholstery and so on. But he says that this car was a secret version that Preston Tucker was working on because he wanted to have a convertible version in the 48. And that work had already begun at the car, but it was later moved to Lenke Engineering, the firm that Tucker had used to build the Ten Goose. Hmm. And um, now this had to have been quite a secret. 
Yeah. So much of a secret that other people don't really know about it. Yeah. Like Tremulous yeah. Uh, doesn't say anything about uh, yeah, it. Yeah, I wonder about that because here's Tremulous, the guy that designed the car and who was obviously hand, very hands-on. Right, and I he mean, he said in interviews that he couldn't recall it. Yeah, this is a little strange, but I do want to point out, though, that there were we mentioned, if you remember, 58 frames right. and some bodies that were built that were at the Tucker factory that were kind of left there, that were un. You know, there were, there were some that were unbuilt, some that were built, of course, out of the 58 frames and bodies. I mean, 51 of them saw the light of day. Right. That's but true. Now, now 36 were built at the factory, and then 14 were, more were built after the factory was shut down, you know, because he kept that core group of people with him, right? Yeah. So 14 were built kind of by hand by a small group of people. And then, you know, there's that one that was kind of unfinished, but I've never heard of this uh, this convertible, and I've never seen a photo of one. Right. Okay. Yeah. We've never seen a photo of one from that time. So, all right. So Justin Cole, as you said, the benchmarks classic guy, um, actually was auctioning the vehicle in, mm. uh, 2013 or was attempting to, but Barrett Jackson, uh, pulled the vert convertible from the auction, um, because of dubious paperwork or what? Well, because, they uh, said that the consigner decided not to sell it. That's a tough sale, Ben. I mean, because no one's heard of this thing. There's no real historical information to back this thing up. There's no documentation, right? Right. That's tough. I mean, it, it sounds it sounds to me like he's a, a credible customizer. You know, maybe... It's a picture. Oh, that's a beautiful car. That's a very pretty car. Yeah, I, I really like the convertible design. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe the frame is... Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say, but it was never produced in the factory by Tucker's men. Right. That's that. As near as we can tell, that is that is the correct thing. So that's what uh, we were talking about when we said cars that may or may not be Tucker's. Interesting. That's, I'd like to hear what our listeners think about that too. I would. I would love to follow up in the story and find out what the what the the real scoop is on this thing. Well, you know? we know this is something you schooled me on uh, off air a while back. We know that Tucker did have plans for vehicles that weren't produced. True. Like yeah. um, the Talisman. The Talisman. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, Carioca? Carioca. Yeah, I know. Yes. You, that one's always tough for you to remember. But the Carioca, which means... Uh, I think it just means the people of Rio de Janeiro, which yeah, is strange. Yeah. It's, like, it's like the way they refer to themselves is the, like the Carioca. So uh, Brazilian in... in design i guess or in thought yeah and you can uh, without the same mistake of the nova but you can uh you can check out some more stuff there um if you dig a little deeper because we do know that the talisman and the carioca there we go i got it you got it thanks man are both um we're both real things the convertible though might be a little bit of a conspiracy theory tell you what since i want to i do want to hold off on that one last thing to the very very end let's yeah. uh let's just go ahead and say this because um you know tucker obviously he's not with us anymore he's uh, right. he was born in 1903 he died early on he died when he was uh 53 years old so in 1956 he died of uh, lung cancer and man ben you know this is one of those things that i feel and I've seen this happen to other people before, where something's just traumatic, so traumatic happens in their life that, you know, it seems like not long after that, it's almost like their health just gives away because their, their immune system's down or something. It yeah. seems, it really seems to me that there's something to that. The trial and, broke him. And I know, I know that, you know, he died of lung cancer. I get that. That, that gets you eventually. I know that. Right. However, the timing is so strange that it was just after this and he was so, energetic and so full life and everything before that i i get it i the timing is just a really odd thing for me i don't i don't really i, th- I think i really believe that the trial brought him down so much 
um, that, you know, he was probably low on, low in spirits and in health and everything mm-hmm. at that point. But he passed away in 1956, I said, I think, right? Yeah, 1956, yeah, the, uh, the December 26th. Yeah, the day after Christmas. So that's a, that's a drag, but he died in Ypsilanti, Michigan. So one of his, uh, one of his, you know, towns that he lived in, he you know, right. drug his family to back and forth all over the, <laughs> all over the world, really, or all over the United States. Um, but, uh, you know, just kind of an interesting fact. If, if you live in the Michigan area, or anywhere near Ohio or, you know, the Ohio-Michigan border or Indiana, you can go visit the grave of Preston Tucker if you wanted to. He's he's buried in Flat Rock, Michigan at Michigan Memorial Park Cemetery. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, something you can just drive to and see. And there's a, a, a modest marker. It's nothing, you know, huge, ornate or anything. I've seen yeah. it. You know, that uh, site, I think it's called findagrave.com, something right. like that. You can look at, uh, you know, the information. Of course, there's a... Um, a uh, brass plate that has, you know, he and his wife's name on it, mm-hmm. and the, you know, the dates and everything you expect. But it says something like the founder of the Tucker car, a little, um, maybe a side profile, the Tucker itself. Mm-hmm. And that's about it. It's really nothing outlandishly special or anything. I thought we'd have like a big, you know, um, monument with the, the actual Tucker car on top of it or something, but, um, it's very modest. Yeah. And, uh, if you wanted to, you can visit that grave, you know, pay your last respects. But Flat Rock, Michigan, I think that's, uh, it's pretty accessible by the highways. There's a, there's a, you know that that track that I always tell you I used to visit. There? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, the racetrack, that's in Flat Rock, Michigan. So I was, I was just miles from that all the time, and I had no idea. I would have, <laughs> I would have stopped by there occasionally just to, you know, see what's going on. But anyways, yeah, it um, just makes me sad to it, think about. It does. He what died. Could have happened. He died young, and if he, you know, if he had had a chance to really, you know, bring some more of these designs to fruition. Mm-hmm. Um, like he did with the Tucker, I think I think he had a chance. I mean, and who knows what ideas this guy had? Yeah, I mean, because he had some fantastic ideas in the 1940s. You know that he had others that, you know, after you get burned like that in that trial, um, you're probably pretty, um, I don't know, reticent to to give up more information. Yeah, you know, I don't. Right. Know, that's not the right way to say that. It's probably yeah. you're probably more uh, reserved, I guess, in what you allow to come forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to say like, I've got this idea for this car that does this. Because he knows that you know someone's going to nab that idea from him uh, before he gets a chance to build it. And now you and I have talked off air about when we do the one last thing. Now we're going to make it literally the last thing. So hold on, we're going to do listener mail first. Sounds good. All right, uh, we have a longtime listener and a good buddy of ours, Josh B, writing into us. Um, and you remember Joshua, right? I do. Okay, so. Uh, he says, an episode on Tucker. Yes. Back in July 2011, I'd emailed about a book I picked up in the giveaway bin at the local library. I thought I'd mention it again in case you were interested in some extra reading. It's called The Indomitable Tin Goose, a biography of Preston Tucker, written by Charles T. Pearson. Pearson was a friend and colleague of Tucker, so he has a lot of interesting info and stories to tell about the Tucker. His beginning as a businessman and the rise and fall of Tucker's automotive endeavor. I may have to read it again and brush up because it's been a while, but I can't wait to hear part two. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also he also has this other unrelated fact that I thought you would find interesting. Okay. Josh always sends us good stuff. And so he said, I saw something kind of odd this morning I thought I'd share. Pope Francis's 110th anniversary Harley-Davidson was recently auctioned off in Paris by Bonhams with proceeds going to help the homeless. I watched a video this morning wherein the motorcycle experts said they thought it'd be worth about twelve to 15,000 euros, but they said they had no idea what kind of money this it would bring at this point due to its rarity. 
Huh. You know, I've seen, I think uh, a couple of years ago, didn't they have um, like a Volkswagen Cabriolet or something that was uh, with a Pope? Had owned? Oh, yeah, yeah. And they were auctioning that off, too. And the same thing. It's like, well, it's not really worth that much. But then again, now this guy's the Pope now. So let's, uh, we're going to add a little bit of value to that. Thing. Right. And the Pope, uh, the Pope Mobile. He rides is, a Harley. Yeah. That's in other news. The Pope owns a motorcycle. Um, but what's, what's interesting to me about that part is, um, the, what we call the Pope Mobile is definitely not what the Vatican calls it. We know they don't particularly care for that nickname, but the vehicle that the Pope is in is kind of automatically the Pope Mobile, mm-hmm. the same way that any airplane the president of the U.S. is in is Air Force One. That's right. And we have a short How Stuff Works article on the Pope Mobile, and it'll tell you those kind of facts and others and about how that whole thing works because it's, it's a pretty interesting thing, you know, like all the requirements for that thing, like how, mm. how they keep it from turning into a sauna. Because, you know, there's a, a, a glass box that he right. rides in, basically. So how they keep that thing cooled and mm-hmm. um, just some of the interesting variations of the uh, the Pope Mobile that have been around through the, 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 fact that it has through a, the decades. A tape deck. Yeah, <laughs> and, and the Mercedes tie-in. That's yeah, pretty interesting, that too, is that good. they provide. They, well, I'm not going to spoil it. Yeah, we, but, won't, um, we won't say it. But anyways, much. Josh, I, I also want to say that uh, that Tucker, or the, the uh, kind of roundabout way, I guess, to get to the uh, the Tucker story. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the guy's name? The other guy's name? Um, oh, Charles Pearson. Pearson, yeah. I would love to read Pearson's story because you know the people that know someone like Tucker often have a different or unique perspective on that person that we don't get in you know in the popular media. So I would love to read that story and find out I don't know the backside stories. Like sure, this. yeah, behind the curtain. Exactly, yeah. Speaking of behind the curtain, we're finally ready. This is how we're ending our officially. Our longest podcast ever, Definitely. a three-part series on Preston Tucker. I, we've talked for like three hours about Preston Tucker, Ben. I was I was interested in it the entire time, and I and I feel like looking at our notes, I feel like we could talk for another three hours about the guy. Oh man, but I we're wasn't not going to say it. We're not going to. We're going to end it on this. Yeah, this is an interesting and little-known fact, I think. But you know, it'll it'll become apparent that uh, that is true after you do a little bit of digging as well. Um, get this, Ben. Mm. In 1950, there was a NASCAR entry of a Tucker in uh, in two races. So you may think, like, well, that's really odd that I never, ha- ever have seen a Tucker on the NASCAR track. And never will again. And never will again. The, the thing is, this is how this is how rare it was, Ben. So rare that you didn't even get to really see a full lap. What? Yeah, yeah. This is such a strange story. Now, Canfield, Ohio... May 30th, 1950, a, a driver by the name of Joe Marola qualified a 1948 Tucker for a NASCAR race, but the car broke a right rear axle and uh, and never completed the first lap. So he qualified for the race, mm-hmm. made it into the big show. Yeah. And this is an actual NASCAR race. Remember, they were running like a lot of smaller tracks back then. It was a true stock car event. And Tucker, if you think about it, it probably fit right in with the rest of the, the cars oh, that were sure, running yeah. in NASCAR in at that, that day. time. Yeah, sure. At that time, that's what they looked like. So it never finished the first lap, right? And uh, this is, they thought that this was the one for the longest time. They thought this was the car that was destroyed in the warehouse fire in Florida. Um, and the, which car was that? That was car number um, 23. Yeah. They thought that was it. I guess after they did a lot of digging, they found out that it was actually car number four, that uh, the one that is now in Japan and has no no kind of connection to the NASCAR look that it had back then because it was kind of a silver-looking car back then. I think now it's painted a red or maroon color um, as it sits on display in Japan. Wow. And now the, the other th- strange thing about this is that, you know, digging a little further, and Hemmings did a great job on this because this is where I found the additional information because I thought, 
I thought up until today that it was the uh, the Florida car, uh, the one that was destroyed in the fire and then crushed and put under the guy's uh, garage and all that. Yeah. Not that car. This was one that um, it was also entered in a second race, Ben, in 1950. Huh. And I didn't know that either. I mean, what? until until today. But a second race was run at the Monroe County Fairgrounds in Rochester, New York, on July 9th of that same year. And this is at the Grand National Championship race. And the, the story on this one was that the Tucker was not supposed to enter the actual race itself, but it was going to uh, run a one-lap feature race versus the winner of the Grand National Championship. So that was kind of like the uh, make the crowd hang out till the end of the race and yeah. watch the one last thing, right? Oh, nice, yeah. Like we do. We listen, <laughs> listen for the one last thing, right? Too close to home. Yeah, a little bit. So so the thing is, same same year. Now, remember, May is when it broke the axle in the first race and it couldn't compete. This is July. It goes out on the track for that that um, that one lap kind yeah. of uh, you know showman race or pretty much an exhibition. Yeah, an exhibition race. That's what I meant. Uh, exhibition race. It breaks the same right rear axle and can't complete the first lap. Out of that one lap race, it can't complete that lap. So it never really had a NASCAR presence. But the but the interesting thing is you can go back and find a lot of photos of the, this driver Joe Marola and. His 1948 Tucker sedan that has a num- big number 12 painted on the side, even though it's car number four. Um, you know, that has no tie in. That's a <laughs> right, serial yeah. number, but right. you can find a Tucker that's painted up or, you know, I guess be painted like a NASCAR of the day. Really kind of a cool photo and a bunch of them, you know, on the track. And of course it, you know, being towed away from the track, you know, when it was, uh, his right rear axle is broken, but twice coincidence. Twice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Tuck, uh, Preston would probably be screaming, uh, you know, conspiracy, right? Right. Sabotage. Yeah. Sabotage. Murder. Yeah. Sure. But without knowing more information, we have to be, we have to be hesitant in our statements. Like we don't, we, we know that there were design problems as there would be in any early production of a, of a completely new vehicle. Sure. And you know what? Other people complained of the same type of axle issues. Right. Yeah. And that's a great point. Yeah. So, so this might not be part of the grand conspiracy to of course not. bring down the Tucker Corporation. <laughs> But it is fascinating that over the course of our research, you and I both swung from a much more skeptical position yeah. to a much more, huh, yeah, kind of position. Sure, yeah. I think uh, I think there was uh, some bigger forces in play here. I still, you know, I'm going to say that there was something to it because at what point uh, does a string of coincidences become something more? Yeah. Anyhow, let us know what you think. Do you think that Preston Tucker was uh, shut down by the big three or the system, for lack of a better phrase? Or do you think that this was just a run of bad luck and yet another early car co- corporation that couldn't, just for a, one reason Just another. a small businessman that couldn't compete. Do you think that, or do you think uh, someone took him down? Yep. Let us know on Facebook and Twitter, where we are CarStuffHSW. Uh, thank you so much for listening, by the way. We hope you enjoyed this as much as we enjoyed covering it. Uh, and I wish we could do number four. I kind of do, too. But I, I think we have to change it up, buddy. I think we have to move on. Definitely. We're going to move on from this point. Uh, there's more to life than just Tucker's. Uh, yeah, it hurts to admit, but maybe you're right. There are always Packard's. Uh, so we'll go, uh, you can see us on carstuffshow.com and you can also send us an email directly. We are carstuff at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. 
Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.